Hello and welcome to episode four of the Strength in Depth podcast. In this episode, we welcome Hannah Pitt from Catapult Sports, where she discusses her journey, the powers of networking, and her research into differential RPE. And while we're here, we want to look back on our previous episodes, which are available on all podcast providers. So if you've not listened to them yet, feel free to go back and have a little listen. Um, and also feel free to give us a follow on Instagram, and that's Taylor underscore performance. And on Twitter, it's at LukeT88. So without further ado, we'll open up the episode with Hannah Pitt. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show. Really excited to have you on this morning. Um, so, um, yeah, if you could start by just kind of give us a little bit of a bit of a background on yourself and a, kind of a little bit of a of a journey to date, um, and yeah, fire away. Yeah, sure. So, um, I did my undergrad um, at Nottingham Trent University. Uh, graduated back in two thousand and eleven, which seems a long time ago now. Um, and at that point, I kind of left uni kind of knowing what I wanted to do, but not really knowing how to get there. And I actually applied to do a master's straight after my undergrad. Um, at the day I was going to confirm my master's, I actually got offered um, an internship at, at Walsall Football Club. So I deferred my uh, master's for a year to do a, a year's uh, voluntary uh, experience at Walsall Football Club. Um, after that, I then went into uh, another football club working with the first team, uh, which was Notts County. Ended up deferring the Masters again because I got that opportunity. Um, and at that point, I kind of said to Nottingham Trent, like, no, I'm not going to do a Masters. Uh, I'm going to leave it for now. Um, so after Nottingham Trent, um, after Notts County, sorry, I went to uh, West Bromwich Albion for a season. Um, and that was a little bit different in terms of I'd only previously had first team experience, um, but this was a mixed role. So you got to work with everyone from under sixes up to the first team on rotation, which was my first experience working with uh, academy players. Um, after West Brom, I went to a place called the Nike Academy um, for two years. Um, and unfortunately, the Nike Academy ended uh due to financial reasons um so that left me in a position to to start to think like do i want to continue working down a football route or do i want to go and explore other sports um and i made the decision at that point to go into tennis um so i spent the next uh two and a half years working at edgebaston priory tennis center um in birmingham uh working with junior tennis players and they ranged from seven-year-olds up to 18-year-olds um so that was a really good experience moving away from football into uh tennis and then from there um i got a job um at catapult sports which is where i'm currently um and i've now been in that role for two years so my primarily role there is um a sports scientist um and i work mainly with football clubs within the uk I also branch out into uh, Olympic sports, which is interesting. Nice. So pretty kind of like extensive uh, kind of experience that you've kind of had kind of off the back of not knowing what you wanted to do and going from fresh out of an undergrad and saying, okay, 
I'm unsure what I want to do. I'm going to continue my studies in a master's degree and then bang, there you are at Warsaw. So how did that come about? So you've you finished your undergraduate degree. I'm going to do a master's degree. I'm unsure how, how I want to kind of progress in the, in the field of sport or sport science. Um, and then how have you ended, kind of gone from that and then into the, into the role at Warsaw? How has that come about? Um, so actually in my second year of uni, um, I applied to be what was called a games maker at the London 2012 Olympics. Um, and I was successful in my application for that. And my role was to be a sports statistician, um, which at first I was interviewed to be sort of a meet and greet person that was just gonna stand on the outside and be like, your seat is row A and pass some people that way. And then they interviewed me again for this sports statistician role, which sort of opened my eyes as to sort of other roles that exist within sport. And I guess um, the time commitments for the Olympics um, was kind of stopping me looking for, I guess, like a, a traditional full-time role straight out of uni just to get some money because I knew I had to commit to four weeks over Easter and then about five weeks over the actual Olympics. Um, so I started applying for sports science jobs. I was unsuccessful in most of my uh, applications and in the end I just started uh, emailing and writing to everyone I could find uh, using Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, etc. So even if a job wasn't available um, that I knew of, I was emailing these people and I, I made like I've seen things on Twitter since like and I get it all the time on LinkedIn where I'll get a message saying, dear sir, have you got any jobs like I made I made a point of knowing who I was going to be emailing or writing to or phoning up. Um, I, it doesn't take long to find who that person is. Um, and if you're writing dear sir to a female, like they're, they're gonna sort of turn you away straight away. So I actually got um, an invite to a interview at Walsall and I turned up on the day and we had a sort of icebreaker where we were all sitting in a room and they were going around and everyone was a physio. It was like, oh, my name is, is Luke and I'm a physio. And I was thinking, they've thought I've, I'm a physio here. Like this is gonna be really embarrassing that I'm at an interview for a physio role and I'm not a physio. I got called into the, the manager's office where they were holding the interviews and they were like, oh, we know you're a sports scientist. Uh, we can offer you a few days a week um, if you wanna come and get experience here. So that's how I ended my, uh, my first role at, at Walsall Football Club. Nice. Okay, so you, so you've so you've landed your first role in a voluntary position at Warsaw. So what did that kind of what did that entail? What was what did that entail? So you've gone from a, a theoretical undergraduate at Nottingham Trent, and you've gone in at Warsaw. So you um, was there much kind of in your undergrad? Were there much kind of practical applications in there? Did were you prepared? Do you feel to kind of go into that role at Warsaw, or were you kind of thinking on your feet? Uh, there was certainly a lot of thinking on my feet. Um, I guess there was um, a lot of the theoretical stuff you obviously had learned at uni, but on my first day, um, we were using polar heart rate belts as the, a form of internal uh, monitoring. And um, my mentor at the time, John Whitney, who was the physio, who was also the SNC coach, the nutritionist, the sports scientist within the club, um, he said, okay, go and speak to the manager who was Dean Smith at the time and go and tell him what you thought of training. And I just froze. I thought of the manager being this person that's sitting on like 
the the throne almost you know like you you're sort of worshiping this person and and then suddenly i'm thrown into his office and i need to report on today's training and at that point i realized how important i guess your soft skills are and so yeah so how did that go how did how did, how did that chat how did that chat go day one uh, I gave John Whitney a look and he kind of uh, took over at that point. I wasn't quite ready to tell the uh, the manager that the uh, the training session seemed quite hard from an internal load point of view. So uh, it was a good experience. Uh, it kind of broke the ice. Um, but yeah, definitely have to be used to getting thrown into the deep end. No, okay. Brilliant. No, that's really that's a really nice thing to hear about those. Yeah, those soft skills that we've kind of seen, kind of over the kind of recent years, being imperative, especially within within team. Well, in all sports, but definitely within team sports. Um, so you've so you've done your time at, at Warsaw. Kind of what were your kind of key learnings from that kind of first kind of that first team experience and kind of your first experience within elite sport? I think the the key learning was like the relationships that you build with the staff. Um, I, we, I guess that there wasn't the budget that maybe Premier League clubs would have in terms of uh, sports science provision. Uh, you know, we weren't using GPS devices to monitor training load and there was a really small gym and stuff, but actually like the, the whole department as a whole got on really well. Um, and having then moved into another club, that was a complete difference between the, the relationship there. So that taught me quite early on that you need to build relationships with the like the head coach, with the, the physio and the sports scientists and things like that, and especially with the players. So you so you so you left Warsaw at the end of kind of your year kind of voluntary experience, and then you went so you said you landed a role at Notts County. So how did that come about? Um similar, really. I got in touch um, and they invited me down. So you didn't write, um, dear sir, dear madam, so you found out who these people were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, found out who the, the physio was at the time and wrote directly to him. Um, and yeah, just uh, started on day one of pre-season there. Um, it was it was a different experience to Walsall. I think I had it uh, quite nice at Walsall um, in terms of like the relationships with everyone and there was sort of um, time spent outside of the club where we'd socialise with each other and it's quite a tight-knit uh, group um, and then at Notts County there's quite a few manager uh, changes during my time there um, which comes with other departments changing as well so that opened my eyes again as to sort of the the instability of football um, and how like, managers do change and sometimes they will bring in their own coaching staff uh, and sports scientists and things like that. Okay. Nice and then you said you moved on to West Brom. Was this another voluntary role? Was this a, a paid role? Uh, this was a paid role now, yeah. yeah. So was this an application or was this again another kind of uh, a, a kind of pestering or a, a who you know type, <laughs> a type moment? Uh, yeah, this was a, an applied role this time. So there was, a, there was quite a few applicants at the time for the position, um, but having feedback from um, Chris Barnes at the time, I'd actually gone on to do a couple of uh, GPS workshops uh, that would perform better with running at the time. Um, and that meant that actually I'd had some training on the devices that they were currently using at West Brom. And he said that just stood out on my application because I had some knowledge there that I could go in and start using uh, that form of monitoring straight away 
without someone having to spend the time to sort of train someone up. So that was the thing really on my CV that stood out um, compared to the other hundreds of applications at that time. So you, so aside from, you know, you had your undergraduate degree, you had your, your two years experience, but you also had a kind of additional qualifications that, as you're saying, that, you, that kind of made you kind of work ready. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'd, um, so I obviously, like I said, I deferred the master's. Um, I'd actually done a two year um, diploma um, while I was at Walsall and Notts County. Uh, with the International Olympic Committee, which was in sports nutrition. Um, and that was a part-time uh, remote-based uh, qualification. So I was doing that alongside. So I guess I had that qualification that not other sort of many people had. Um, but at this point, um, I still didn't have a master's um, and it was getting progressively harder and harder to get these roles um, because of like nowadays you need a master's just to, to get sort of on the, the checkbox list. Um, so yeah, at this point it was it was getting harder. No, yeah, and we see that all in yeah, the masters is now kind of that 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 first run on the ladder, isn't it? Otherwise the, the CV gets chucked out the window almost. Um, yeah, that's it. So so you're in at West Brom and you said so you're in it so in a, an academy position, am I right in saying? Yeah, uh, they took three of us on. Um so there was one uh, with nines to sixteens. There's ones with uh, 18s and 21s at the time. And then there was one person with the first team and then we rotated. So we'd spend like a third of the season uh, with each group, uh, which was quite interesting. Um, so that kind of opened my eyes into sort of the, like what you can achieve at an academy level. Um, you can see so much progression in the younger players, um, which I really liked. Um, and they kind of, they have no experience at that point. So you can really shape uh, their views on things and educate them as to why certain things are important for their development. Oh, fantastic. And then I guess to kind of go, so you've, you've left that role a couple of years later and then you've entered this kind of um, world of the Nike Academy, which I guess for listeners who might not be aware of, I guess if you want to give a little bit of detail around what the Nike Academy was, um, for the, the few years that it did exist, um, that would be fantastic. Yeah, um, so the Nike Academy was a, a residential programme and it took players from all over the world. Um, so we had players from sort of Australia, New Zealand, uh, Korea, and then local uh, guys from the UK. So it really was a, a global programme. And we lived all together in a hotel. Um, so I lived in a hotel for two years of my life, which was interesting <laughs> with sort of 20, 16 to 21 year old boys. Um, and the aim of the programme was to get them professional contracts. So these players had either been in clubs and been released um, or they'd never been scouted before. Um, so we trained as any sort of academy would in football. Um, but during our matches, we'd often get scouts from different clubs uh, coming to watch. Um, and overall, it was quite successful in the number of people that we managed to get um, into clubs, whether that was in the UK or back into their, their home country. So, yeah, so how did that project come about? Because it was, because it was, from what I remember, because it was based in St George's Park, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Because from what I remember, it was a really well kind of funded programme. It was quite a high profile pro programme, you know, um, from seeing it from being at St George's Park, it, it seemed like a well-resourced, but it looked like a fantastic kind of 
kind of program how did that all kind of come about yeah so i think like there was i guess three pots of funding for the nike academy you'd have sort of like research and innovation um and then you'd have like media and marketing or branding mm -hmm. so each of those saw an opportunity to utilize this academy to to get something out from it for themselves so for example like we we'd have millions of followers and they were called football obsessed teenagers at the time so there's these young kids that are just obsessed with football and the nike academy would be wearing the latest boots they'd be wearing the latest kit and we'd post uh, videos and things so all these football obsessed teenagers would then want to go and buy the latest boots and kit so that was one aspect of it another was uh, research and innovation um, so I guess like the, sort of the one of the highlights from working at the Nike Academy was that we got to go to the Nike World Headquarters uh, for pre-season each year. And uh, like the campus is incredible over there and the people are amazing and you got to see things where like you'd go into the lab, uh, you'd hand over your passport and you'd have to sign like a waiver to say like you're, you're not going to share what you see with anyone else. So. <laughs> You saw boots that were going to be created for like the World Cup in the four years time and things like that. So that was really cool. So the research and innovation could use our players, you know, like they, they might wear prototype football boots and get feedback. So that was one way of, of getting feedback from players that were training full time um, before releasing them to, I guess, your professional footballers. Um, and then obviously marketing. Um, everything we did we'd have like a photographer um or we'd have people videoing and stuff like that so that would get all posted on uh, nike socials so that was kind of i guess the the three aspects of how it's made up but as a sort of an internal group we just ran it as we would any academy so that kind of didn't form any part of our, our job like our, our aim was to get the uh, the players professional contracts and that's what we we focused yeah. on how was it for you guys as a staff group kind of living in a hotel full time and I'm guessing quite full on and pretty relentless? Yeah, it was good. It, it had its ups and downs, you know, like we, we lived in a place called Yarnfield Park, which was an old BT training complex. So you're talking sort of a 1950s style building here. It's not <laughs> a it's not a Hilton hotel like you get at St George's Park. Um, it was in the middle of nowhere, so you couldn't really go anywhere unless you drove. Um, but I, we had a great group of uh, players um, and the culture was really good. And I think like you, you kind of had to have that culture, otherwise you kind of didn't really survive at the academy. Um, it was quite a tough in terms of if I, we'd have new players coming in all the time. Um, and I think because we had some players that had been in there for a while, like the, they sort of set the, the example but we had a really good group of staff as well um, and we got on with them. So it, it was definitely interesting. I did feel like I was mom to 20 boys at some <laughs> point, you know, like they, they're going through breakups, but their girlfriend's over in Japan and they're just asking for advice, you know. Um, in the evenings, you, you'd end up sitting in the players' lounge talking to them until 10, 11 at night. So it was quite intense, um, but we had some great times. So it was a shame when it ended. Yeah, so I guess as a side, so a similar to you kind of alluded to, your soft skills have definitely developed in those two years. But kind of key takeaways as a practitioner from those two years. Um, I guess still the like we 
from a, I guess, a, a personal point of view at the Nike Academy, because we didn't have like a league, we, we didn't have that pressure of having to win every Saturday, otherwise our job was on the line. We could actually do some cool things in terms of like sports science, um, you know, like we'd, we'd test um, hamstring fatigue or adductor fatigue um, pre-half time and post-match and things like that. So you'd never do that within a first team environment because of obviously you've got pressures of winning matches and I'm sure the manager will come back and question why you were, you were doing that. But so from a, a professional sort of practitioner point of view, we had the opportunity to kind of do what we wanted as long as it was justified and there was sort of backing, like research backing why we wanted to investigate something. But from a, a soft skills point of view, it, it was the same really, building relationships with the players um and making sure that you spent time to educate those players you know like we we wouldn't just ask them to do a hamstring iso before a match unless we'd told them why we were going to do that yeah. and made sure they understood so education and uh, developing relationships was probably another two um that i took away from that nice and then i guess so you left or the nike academy ended and then you've taken up a role where you're at where you're at now around uh, catapult sports which again poses a new challenge in the sense of it's a sports science role but also kind of potentially in a businessy type role as well so how how are you finding this yeah it's good um i've definitely developed um some skills that i've not had to utilize before um like you say it is you kind of providing sports science provision to clubs uh, or teams but at the same time you've got some sort of business uh, goals that you need to achieve. Um, so you're kind of acting as like a, a middle person in some um, aspects in terms of making sure that the customer is always happy. Um, so whatever they need, you, you need to try and provide that for them or find a solution for it. So I never had that before because I was always, I guess, the other, the other side of it. Um, and now I actually work alongside um, my colleague now, Joe Baker, he was actually the person in my role when I was at the Nike Academy. So I can understand now where he's coming from when I'm sending him hundreds of messages as to how do you do this? What's happened here? Um, I definitely understand where <laughs> what he must have been feeling at the time, but it's a really good job. Um, you, there's pros and cons to, to every role, but now I've moved away from working in football. I, I've got weekends back. Um, which are quite valuable. Um, I'm sure lots of people talk about the work-life balance and sometimes it is hard to have that when you're working in professional sport. Um, you know, you're, you're playing on Saturday and Sunday can sometimes be a recovery day and suddenly you get like a Tuesday off in the middle of the week while your family's working on that day and your friends are working. So I, get, I have a much better work-life uh, life balance now. Um, and I get to, I guess, go into lots of clubs and learn from them as well, uh, which is interesting. So every club will do different things. Um, so spending a day in there, you get insights into all, all different aspects of sort of uh, coach and sports science relationships or different forms of monitoring training load, um, different ways of periodizing the week and things like that. So. There's a, lot, there's a lot of uh, positives to this role and I'm enjoying it at the moment. Fantastic. And I guess it's a link to that kind of like 
the way you're monitoring training load and kind of the way you, you structure a week, I guess that kind of links to kind of your area of interest around research and um, uh, your kind of your further study. So I guess for the, the listeners, um, you're currently studying uh, a master's by research, am I right in saying? Uh, it's an MPhil. So MPhil, sorry. So. Apologies, an MPhil. Um, in differential RPE. Yeah. So if you just want to give a little bit of a detail around this, I think that would be really, yeah, really interesting to kind of hear. Mm -hmm. So I originally got the opportunity when I was at the Nike Academy to do a master's. Um, and like I've said, I deferred twice um, at Nottingham Trent and um, at that point, I was kind of like, well, when am I going to do a master's? I know that I'm going to have to do it at some point if I want to progress in my career. So it came about that uh, Nike were willing to fund um, myself and my colleague to do some uh, further education. So I took on an MPhil um, and decided to do it in differential ratings of perceived exertion. So if you don't know what that is, it's instead of your traditional um, rating of perceived exertion where you might ask after a session, okay, how hard was that overall using a Borg scale? Um, you now split this up. So you get a rating for um, how hard was it sort of on your heart rate and your breathlessness, how hard was like a muscular exertion, and then you can break it down even further and have like a te technical or cognitive demand. And when I was at the Nike Academy, the, the person previous to me in the sports science role, they'd actually implemented this. So it, it sort of led me to ask more questions around this monitoring and then I realised well there was a little bit of a gap in the research uh, which is why I took that up um, so that's yeah that's where I started so I started when I was at the Nike Academy um, and I'm still going now after quite a few job changes changing my uh, protocols and things like that um, but I've got the Viva in December so we're close to finishing now which is good. Nice. And what, what's the kind of like key takeaways you've taken from it? Because I think from listening to that, just kind of snapshot, it definitely would sit well with me having a differential RPE for athletes because having a standalone kind of arbitrary one to 10, six to 20, opposed to kind of what you're mentioning. Yeah, it would, it seems to straight away would, would, would work well. So what would, would be kind of like a snapshot sales pitch for differential RPE? <laughs> um, without saying we need further research, um, it, so I, I took the, the gap that was in the research, so I did sort of an applied uh, validation of it. Um, so I did a protocol that replic replicated the demands of team sports um, and then validated differential RPE off that. Um, Based on the protocol, there is further research required, <laughs> unfortunately, but I can definitely see the, the positives of this. Um, so Sean McLaren has done most of the research um, in differential RPE, and you can definitely see how it, it might provide sort of a further insight into the internal load um, compared to just one arbitrary value. Nice, very good. And I guess, so looking at your kind of career so far, um, definitely very very varied in what you've done and it 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 shows quite a lot of initiative um opposed to the dear sir can i have a job um which i've definitely had a lot of in my inbox in the t in the time and in linkedin and i'm definitely sure that lots of people have had and 
and even lots of people have done and I probably have fallen foul of that in the past um, any jobs going um, so I guess for students listening what would be aside potentially from what you've already said what would be your kind of key messages to say okay aside from getting a good undergraduate degree which is we, we've kind of said is the bare minimum and hopefully going away and if applied sport and elite sport is kind of the aim, a master's degree alongside that, what would be your kind of key thoughts around getting these, these positions? What would you kind of say, how would, how would you kind of feel about going to get these roles? Mm -hmm. So like, first of all, I think whilst you're doing your undergrad, you need to make the most of it. Um, And I'm probably guilty of not making the most of it when I was at uh, Nottingham Trent. So like you're, you're surrounded by so many lecturers that have so much uh, practical experience at the same time. So like just grabbing them um, for an hour, you know, just to, to get their insights into what they've done and their roots of how they went down. And if you can support any PhD students in data collection, I think that's a great start to start um, understanding like the, the process of uh, collecting data um, within sort of the field. And then alongside that, like networking is huge. Um, so if you attend any conferences, like I personally find conferences quite daunting um, because like the, there's never very many females within uh, conferences and you'll walk into a room where there's hundreds and hundreds of people and they're all in their clusters of people they know and you feel like you're like the odd one out and you just like, well, who should I talk to, you know? which circle can I break into? So I read up about um, some different tips for this. And I think one of them that works really well is if you know you want to speak to someone at a conference, like just reach out beforehand. So drop them a message on Twitter or LinkedIn and just say, hey, I'm going to be at the UKCA conference next week. Um, would we mind like getting together and just having a quick chat? And you've kind of almost broken the ice before you've got there then. Um, so I find that really useful and go to conferences or CPD events, knowing what you want to get out of it. So if it is just a case of, okay, I want to see these two people present and I want to know the content, well, that's fine. But if it's, I want to network, well, set yourself a target. Um, so like at Catapult, we, we have targets of sort of, okay, I want to speak to five new people today. And that just kind of gives you, I guess, some motivation to, to go and speak to, to five new people that you don't necessarily have ever spoken to before. Because it's so easy at conferences to see someone you know and then just be like, oh, hey, and, and spend a couple of hours catching up. Um, and then in terms of CPD, um, there's, there's quite a few free uh, CPD events out there. You can look on BASES and UKCA for things like that. Um, there's a lot of free conferences at the moment online so it's good to catch up with those um, and at the end of the day you need something on your cv that's going to stand you out on the pile compared to the other hundreds of applicants so if you can do a course that someone else might not have done like you kind of getting a tick there um, but at the same time like you can understand cpd can be expensive so you kind of need to weigh up the, the i guess the cost versus the reward um, that's one thing I look at now when I go to CPD events is what do I want to get out of it and then can I justify the money for for that event so they're probably my uh, top tips of getting the most out of uh, your time at uni um, if they provide like placements then put your name forward and do that speak to your lecturers um, 
do networking like don't be afraid to go and speak to people um, and reach out beforehand if you are a bit worried about that and then attend sort of as many cpd events as you can yeah that's no, nice nice concise i like that i really like that um reach out before reaching out that's really nice that's good because i i definitely find the, the those big events yeah daunting those those big UKSCA rooms where it feels really weird because everyone seems to know everyone and you're right it's like they're already in their rooms they're already in the room and they're already like chatting and it's like you walk in the door they turn around they're like who's this guy like, <laughs> yeah who are you we don't know you we'll just turn around and continue chatting yeah. <laughs> I like that about reaching out before you reach out no that's that's a really good tip awesome right well we'll probably um leave you to your day and let you get back to more important things than chatting to me so um <laughs> But yeah, really thank you for your time. There were some really insightful thoughts there. So um, that was fantastic. Where can, um, if people do want to reach out to you and um, reach out before they reach out, um, how can they find you on uh, on social media? Uh, yeah, so Twitter, I think it's just Hannah Pitt underscore. Uh, and then I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, so yeah, just make sure you don't address me as this. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Fantastic. But yeah, thanks again for your time. And uh, yeah, we'll chat again soon. You're welcome. Thanks, Luke. Hope you enjoyed episode four of the Strength in Depth podcast with Hannah Pitt and what was an insightful conversation around her journey, networking and some of her research. Feel free to give us a shout out on any of the socials using the hashtag Strength in Depth pod. Um, and on Instagram it's at Taylor underscore performance and on Twitter it's at Luke T88. Feel free to look back on any of our previous episodes or give us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you in a couple of weeks for episode five.